The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Even if Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, wins this month's highly controversial election, he could still lose power. I'm Martin Langfield, your host for this episode of The Exchange. I spoke with Siobhan Morden, head of Latin America Fixed Income Strategy at Nomura Securities, about what's driving the OPEC nation's economic and humanitarian crisis and how it might end. Hello, Siobhan. Thank you for coming in. And uh, let's talk about Venezuela. Thanks for having me, Martin. Where to start? Inflation approaching, what, 8,000%? Oil production falling to levels uh, not seen since perhaps the 50s, even worse. An election coming up on May 20th in which the president, Nicolás Maduro, is facing kind of a contender, kind of not, depending on who you ask, Henry Falcón, who some polls suggest may be doing slightly better than Nicolás Maduro, and yet it seems that most people don't think he would be allowed to win even if he won, as it were. What is your sense of how things will pan out here, given those really very difficult situations for the average Venezuelan, uh, let alone for, for bondholders, over the next few months? So as you mentioned, it's a humanitarian crisis, unprecedented in the history of Venezuela and perhaps the history of Latin America, at least from my perspective, and I've been covering these markets for 25 years. Certainly. So the, the damage has been extensive in terms of mismanagement and corruption. So we have this election cycle upcoming, and I think most view it as a non-event, only because in a dictatorship, <laughs> it's not fair process. And it's, it's, this is pretty much what we're talking about right. in terms of most of the opposition who would ordinarily run not being allowed to for various reasons. There's a boycott from the opposition, from the traditional opposition. Yes. And this is an independent candidate. And there's many that do not agree with the boycott. But expectations are that participation will be low. It's difficult to gauge this election only because polls are unreliable because participation rates will be low, abstention will be high, and it's not a fair process. So even though Amri Falcon is polling 10% ahead of Maduro, he has all the institutional advantages of a dictatorship to be declared the winner. In terms of control of television, state media, uh, being able to... Control of the national election authorities, Certainly. effectively. So let's, let's just wind back a little bit here. Uh, Nicolás Maduro took over from the uh, very well-known, charismatic Hugo Chávez, who was a, a Venezuelan military man who won the presidency and over time built up what he liked to call the Bolivarian Revolution. He died, and Nicolás Maduro took over. Uh, he is a, a former trade unionist, a former bus driver, very loyal to the idea of Chavismo, but really not half as smart or half as charismatic as, as Hugo Chavez. Do you think that's fair to say? Well, now, instead of the Bolivarian Revolution, it's called a robo-revolucion. Ah. So it's morphed into a, a very different type of ideology under um, Maduro yes. versus Chavez. You know, the, the difficult thing with Maduro Chavez is you had the oil shock in 2014. Yes. And the mismanagement and corruption was more obvious. And there was no pragmatism within the Maduro regime to alter economic management and improve the well-being of the citizens. So it's it's led to an extreme crisis. And 
There's also, I think, uh, an ideology that corruption is control. Yes. So if you have FX distortions and pricing distortions, that's what feeds the rental income and the corruption income to remain in power, to the disadvantage of everybody else. Quite so. Quite so. So just for perspective, again, on the oil industry in Venezuela, that is, of course, uh, where they get 95% or more of their, their foreign exchange from. Venezuela sits atop the world's biggest oil reserves by, by measures of uh, certainly some organizations, and yet is unable to feed its own people. And so when we talk about the collapse of the oil industry, we're really talking about the collapse of income, the collapse of money from abroad, the ability to basically function as a state. Is that is that a fair way of putting it? Exactly correct, Martin. And I think it was the cumulative years of mismanagement and underinvestment. And now with even fewer resources, it's a multiplier effect where it's this inertia of oil production just collapsing in itself. So they're losing effectively 50,000 barrels per day each month. Good so luck. we're almost in a countdown for bankruptcy for the state. So Venezuela owes a lot of money by some counts, adding all together the state, the state oil company, uh, electricity companies, various other things, maybe 100, 100 billion, 140 billion, depending on who you ask mostly not been paying. Uh, can you help just steer us through where they are with sure. that? Because they kind of said they're going to restructure, then they kind of said we'll pay a bit. And where are we with that there's now? There's priority of lenders. And the initial perspective were that bondholders were a priority for fear of litigation risk that would then impair or further constrain PDVSA operations and then further constrain their cash flow. But it's arrived to a point where there's insufficient funds for bondholders, and now we're going down the list of who's a priority, who's not a priority. So effectively, Rosneft announced, I think it was last month, that they have been getting paid down. Right. And now the latest reports from some local consultants and insiders is that China is now being repaid. Right. So you see that there's a priority, and that puts further constraint in terms of the residual income left for rental and corruption income. Right, and by that we really mean primarily, I imagine, making sure that the military is taken care of. You're going to reach a point where if oil production declines to a million barrels per day at the end of the year, right now we're probably at 1.5 million, Yes. and you take out what you have to pay for China, for Russia, for oil imports that you need for essential dilutants for oil exports, and domestic consumption, there's almost nothing left at the end of the year. And that makes it very difficult to keep on side those that one would need to keep on side if one wanted to stay in power, is that? Right. That's, this is the process towards the risk to governability for Maduro. Yes. And it's a process that's feeding on itself, and there's been no efforts for the Maduro re regime to alter course. And that's true during his whole track record, especially now. So this is a process where if there's nothing left for his constituents, which are public workers, PDVSA public workers, the military, and I'm not talking just the generals, but mid-tier officers, yes. rank-and-file military, if you can't insulate your constituents, which is perhaps maybe 20 percent of, of the voter base, then that's, that's the governability threat to Maduro. That's yes. the regime change threat to Maduro. And that's irrespective of external shocks. We have other external shocks. Okay, so we could, for example, see more sanctions from the United States. Absolutely. Is that one of the shocks you're thinking sanctions. of? litigation risk. Okay, so if you if you were to default on certain bonds, let's think there's there's at least some have collateral in the form of one. one. 2020 PDVSA 20. 
there you go, which uh, has some collateral in the form of Citgo, which is a U.S. refinery. Is that Citgo right? Citgo equity, 50.1%. Right. So there's the question of that possibly litigation over that. Perhaps that could be seized and so forth. Well, that's received a payment. Okay. So there's a, a priority in terms of payment intra they really and don't want to not pay that one then. Right. But they have an amortization payment at the end of the year for $842 right. million, and that's going to become more complicated sure. in terms of their cash flow. As, as the money just dries up because the oil dries up. But I think with the Maduro administration, the strategy has always been survival day by day. Yes. There is no medium-term plan. So if they want to avoid litigation risk, which is more threatening for a bond like the PDVSA 20, mm -hmm. you make that coupon payment. But that may not be a sustainable strategy at the year end. Okay. So we kind of, it feels like we're looking at kind of a, a ticking clock simply in terms of the feasibility of, of even the power machine that the Maduro regime has put together, even that which has worked so far being unable to function beyond perhaps the end of this year. Is that He's, your take on it? It's such a collapse in not only oil sector production, but the non-oil sector, that it's, it's becoming almost scorched earth in a way. And unfortunately... That's probably what it's going to take to force a regime change. And it's not ideal for anyone. No. The Venezuelans are bondholders alike. But unfortunately, that has to be the process to force a transition. Yes. Now, um, certainly at, at, at Breaking Views, we're, we're no friends of military coups here. We're friends of institutions and so forth. But it's not a military coup. No. It's restoring democracy. We are already in a full-blown dictatorship. We are, it, we, it is a self-coup. Certainly, certainly which is a, a phrase that LATAM buffs will be familiar with from the days of President Fujimori. In An, Peru autogolpe. And so, an autogolpe. Amongst the, the, the levers and, and machinery that have worked, you've had uh, subsidized food packages to the uh, directly uh, aimed primarily at the 20% or so of hardcore supporters, perhaps, that you, that you mentioned. The idea of, of being here some basic food, that, but in return you, you vote for us and so forth. There's the full weight of uh, state measures to favor the Maduro candidacy. And yet, at least some people seem to think that Henry Falcon, who's standing against Maduro, could play a role as kind of a transitional figure one way or another. It occurred to me the other day that in some regards, these are, these are imperfect comparisons, but uh, I was... I was uh, moved to think of Adolfo Suarez in Spain, who was a fanangista kind of part of the uh, the Franco sort of setup, and yet was able to lead Spain towards um, a more open and democratic system. With the system. help of King Juan Carlos. Well, most certainly, yes, who was clearly the key player when that uh, coup took place. But uh, a transitional figure, in as much as Henry Falcon was a Chavista, uh, he is part of, in a sense, the broader family of, of the Venezuelan left, even though not of the, the, the Maduro strand. Uh, do you think it's credible from your, your contacts and analysis that he could be a transitional figure, or is it simply that he will not be allowed to win? He would be perhaps, I don't want to say ideal, but convenient transition candidate because he's reached out to both sides. So it would perhaps make the transition easier. He also has credentials, as you mentioned, being ex-Chavista, ex-military, that would perhaps attract the confidence of, of the military. So I think he would be an ideal transition candidate. Also, he has an economic team with a well-known economic advisor. Certainly. That's a gentleman from Torino, I believe, right. uh, Francisco, uh, Francisco Rodriguez. Fr exactly. Which I think would also reduce the uncertainty 
whether or not his plans would work, at least there is some discussion. Absolutely. A, uh, and, and the recognition that we need an economic transition, which is why we need a political transition. So he, I think, if he were allowed to win, and I think his candidacy is purposeful. It's a candidacy that's saying to the opposition, please endorse me explicitly, or he's saying to the military, implicitly endorse me. Mm -hmm. And no one would know whether he would receive that endorsement until maybe the election day. And if that were to happen, it would be a surprise, clearly unexpected. He's not seen as a viable candidate. No one expects him to win. It would it's almost be qualified as tail risk. But mm -hmm. if he were to be allowed to win, then it would trigger a significant rally in the bond markets yeah. and a lot of optimism that we're starting the next chapter with focus on economic reform that will improve the, the well-being of the Venezuelans. So d despite all, all the doom and, and dreadful situation that we've been talking about and you know malnutrition amongst Venezuelans and so forth, nevertheless, ultimately, things could look up. And let's talk a little bit more about what that would take just for a moment, assuming that there were some kind of transition that were more or less peaceful, more or less managed or more or less not chaotic. Uh, Henry Falcon's economic advisor has talked about dollarizing the economy and has uh, uh, talked about perhaps the country needing 15 to 20 billion dollars a year, perhaps for a certain period. I recall the Financial Times back in October last year talked about uh, the IMF kind of doing a, an official scoping exercise of what it might take to help Venezuela should there be a transition and that was around 30 billion dollars a year for some years. Do the transition, yeah, the transition would be very difficult mm. because you're looking at a collapse in oil production and non-oil production. I think there would be a willingness amongst the various political parties and, and the citizens of Venezuela to embrace a transition knowing that there's such misery with, with the current model. I think at a minimum you have to focus on the oil sector. That is their main revenue, as you cited earlier, in terms of foreign exchange, and that is in a, a situation of collapse. So you would have to focus on temporary relief in terms of humanitarian aid. You would definitely need to approach the official creditor community in terms of allowing for official aid, a formal program, technical advice. And this we, is the IMF you're talking about the now? IMF, an American. IMF-led program. Mm -hmm. And it would be extremely difficult because just the transparency. There has been no official public statistics for years right, indeed. in terms I think of just measuring... Today, the, the state of the crisis and, and, and what needs to be done. Quite. The IMF, I think, just today formally uh, at last censored Venezuela for not providing proper information, right. as it did uh, a few years back to, uh, to Argentina, as I recall, yes. under the, the last, previous president. Right. The last statistics that were officially announced, from what I can remember, were third quarter 2015 right. balance of payments data. So we've gone now several years. And that makes it difficult to assess the transition because you need, at a minimum, starting point authentic statistics. Yes. How do you get your arms around it? Right. So everything right. that we have at this stage is from the private sector and guesses at, at this stage. There's, there's a lot of distortion even on measuring inflation. So there is a lot to be done, but I think everyone would welcome that stage of focusing on the recovery period. Certainly. And and I don't know what's more difficult because the, the primary focus is on regime change. It's the only thing that matters to Venezuelans and bondholders alike. It's the only thing that matters because a political transition is the necessary precondition for an economic transition. Right. And that economic transition needs to liberate prices 
It needs to endorse the private sector and allow the private sector to function. And it needs to rebuild the oil sector. And there's going to be a huge dependence upon not only short-term humanitarian aid, but longer-term capex to rebuild the oil sector after years of decline. Certainly. It's, um, it's going to be a huge, a huge effort, huge I've, process. I've but read comparisons of um, the Argentina debt restructuring negotiation plus Greece kind of, kind of well, the bolted main, together somehow. The main difference between Venezuela and, say, Argentina 2001 mm. is in 2001, you didn't destroy the private sector. And under Kirchnerismo, you didn't destroy the private sector. So this is this is a collapse, a systemic collapse, which is unparalleled, I think, in any Latin American history, certainly for a middle-income nation. So it would be extraordinary, the effort to rebuild. But when you look at where bond prices are trading, it's already trading in a way that is capturing the, the current crisis. So can, can you put some numbers on that for a second? Sure. So looking at either PDVSA or sovereign bonds, we're trading anywhere from 25 cents to a little bit above 30 cents. We've rallied off the lows, but some of that's deceptive because we went from quoting clean prices to dirty prices or including the interest payments. So this is, I would say, a historic low in terms of sovereign recovery value. Uh, Argentina set the, the bar lowest at the last restructuring in 2005 at 32 cents. So we're now kind of there. And if they started the process for economic reform, the expectations are recovery value would be higher than current levels. But you need that political will across the different factions of society and the political spectrum to embrace the private sector and embrace market prices. And those are two components that are completely devoid of this Bolivarian revolution. And that's what's created, I believe, the intensity of this economic crisis. So if you embrace the private sector, if you embrace market prices, and you recognize that the Bolivarian Revolution was a complete failure and you need to reverse this economic cycle, then you can return to a situation that allows for stable growth and low inflation. And once again, there are massive oil reserves, which, which Huge uh, is potential. an advantage that uh, some other countries uh, certainly Absolutely. don't have. So there's upside for Venezuelans. There's upside for investors. We talked about a ticking clock earlier. Do you have a sense of whether President Maduro will still be in office this time next year, May 2019? I think it would be very difficult for him to survive the mounting pressures this year within the next six to eight months. As we said earlier, with oil production and a million barrels per day, it won't provide sufficient income for him to remain in office. And if the inertia of the collapse isn't sufficient catalyst, we have the threats of sanctions and litigation risk. Thank you very much, Siobhan Morden. It's been fascinating talking to you, and I hope we can check in again with you, perhaps in a year, perhaps sooner, and see Hopefully. how it's all going. Hopefully. Thank you, Mark. Thank Pleasure. you very much. Thank you for listening to The Exchange. This podcast is produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or check us out at breakingviews.com. <laughs>